you know, one of the reasons I'm voting for Joe Biden, you know, as, as, a, as a Republican and a conservative is because I want someone who's actually interested in taking the temperature down. I know I won't agree with him, maybe on most issues, on most policies, maybe. I know there are some I will, but I want someone to take the temperature down. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Welcome, everyone, to The Head and the Heart. This is Perry Rogers. And this is Ed Borgato. Remember that our show is available on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. Our guest is Essie Cup. She's an American television host, political commentator, and writer. She hosts Essie Cup Unfiltered. She's also the author of Losing Our Religion, The Liberal Media's Attack on Christianity, and co-author of Why You're Wrong About the Right. In addition to that, she is a columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times and the New York Daily News. Essie, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I kind of want to begin, you know, we'll talk a lot about what our filters are. You know, for me, when I'm looking at politics, my filter is uh, a two-pronged filter. The first is the First Amendment, making sure that we're really focused on everyone's freedom to express themselves, protest, religion. And then the other filter that I have is inclusion. I believe that we have all these issues in the world. And so the more people that we can have grab a chair and pull up to the table of actually solving them, the quicker we're going to get to those solutions. Uh, for you and your political perspective, what are the things that are the main lens through which you're viewing politicians and policies? Well, I'm I'm solution oriented, and so I I like to look for solutions both on a practical level, but also on a pol- on a political level, and um, that requires concession, compromise, some very dirty words right now. It requires listening. It requires identifying converts rather than heretics. And it involves looking for good actors. And so often our politics rewards bad actors um, and, and folks who really don't want solutions, who want to keep problems persistent because you can run on problems, you can fundraise off of problems, you can fearmonger off of problems and solving them just isn't as politically profitable. So folks like me sometimes find themselves in a bit of a desert, you know, when it, when it comes to like-minded people. Uh, so I, I, have the, I have the luxury on my show, Unfiltered, of identifying those converts, of having people on who might not agree with me, but also want to find solutions, who, who want to talk through problems, who want to look for areas of agreement. Obviously, if you've watched cable news, that's not the case on, on every show. And, and, you know, that's not, I, I'm not making a value judgment there. It's just a personal, a personal preference. I don't like the the yelling and screaming and you have people on just to embarrass them or you have people on just to sort of put them on the spot. If I have you on, I really want people to hear from you. Um, even if I don't agree. So that's what motivates me. And I'm sure as you've noticed over the past four plus years, uh, it's become harder and harder 
to do that, you know, and have a platform and who knows tomorrow I might not have one anymore, you know, cause you know, it's just, uh, it's really hard to kind of stand athwart a lot of the incoming biases, desires to tear apart and sort of put back together. Yeah. Blood sport is a lot more commercial than conversation which is why I think there's so much political conversation happening on podcasts where you can take the time to try to reach understanding and, and, and have more of a give and take, you know, rather than the sort of rapid fire world of the cable news. Um, you, how was, what was your reaction as a conservative? I'm curious, you know, you talk about solving problems and being oriented in that direction. What was your reaction to your party or maybe former party? I don't know. You can speak for yourself as to how you, you view things right now, not, coming with a platform out of the convention this cycle yeah i mean not surprise not surprising what what would it be other than quote unquote whatever trump says right because the you know the the platform of the party's past has changed significantly under donald trump um because he didn't come with any carried philosophical underpinnings. He, yeah. he wasn't a deep-rooted Republican or certainly not a conservative. I, I always liked to say he sort of wore the Republican Party as a rented tuxedo to get elected and then, you know, took it off and crumbled it up in the corner afterwards and the party is sort of left picking up the pieces. What do we yeah. do with this, you know? And so we watched him systematically, both through the campaign and over the course of his first term, really remake the party in his own image. And, you know, one of the deep laments for conservatives like me is that so many Republicans allowed him to. Um, So many Republicans went along with this new definition of conservatism that had nothing to do with the old version. and, And in fact, in many ways was anathema to it and almost hostile to it and did it willingly. And so to kind of come up with a platform at this stage in the game, I think would have been, would have been kind of a fool's errand. You know, there is this history of the Republican Party standing for the principles of character and duty and sacrifice and the quality of integrity. Have you been surprised, disappointed? Where do you come out on the Republican Senate's or really the Republican elected officials' inability to stand up and step up when they've seen him act beyond the pale? Well, I think both parties over the, the decades stood for integrity and character in, in, in some way or in another, honor, duty, sacrifice. I mean, I, you could locate that on both sides, but I think where Republicans kind of shifted was for a long time, especially I think from like, I don't know, the 60s to the to the 80s and into the 90s as well, I guess, you know, really took a moral high ground that I think largely thanks to like Bill Clinton, Democrats kind of had to, had to abandon. And that came back to bite Republicans in myriad ways, even before Trump, but certainly on, you know, overdrive during Trump, not just because he is such a terrible person, like personally, um, he's not nice to people, right? He's, he's got a politics of revenge. He's mean. He's a bully. He's a user. He's not a good person. Not just that, but because a lot of the policies, and I'll, I'll say quote policies, because they really aren't like well-defined policies. They're whatever Trump needs in the moment. We're also mean and immoral. Um, 
you know, an immigration policy that puts kids in cages and rips them away from their parents, a policy that, that bans transgender people from the military, almost just for spite. There was a lot of meanness to Trump's politics. And for me, you know, Republicans who support Trump can sort of cloak that in toughness. But to me, it, it really takes away any argument that there was a kind of moral authority on the right that was missing on the left for a long time, you know? You described the Trump project as otherizing, which I thought was a really interesting way to phrase it. I wanted to give you an opportunity to sort of flesh that out a little bit. Well, he's really been obsessed with that. It's kind of a go-to move for him. And I, he did it long before he ran for office. Right. Um, it's very natural for him to try to otherize enemies. And it's not just limited to African-Americans or people of color. Really anyone who disagrees with him. Yeah, yeah. He really likes to go to that kind of identity politics, but which, by the way, has like long been eschewed by the right, right? Like the right hates identity politics. Right. So for those of us that really dislike that, it was sort of hair on fire every time he did it. But he did it throughout the camp, throughout his first campaign. He did it to, uh, you know, Ben Carson, for example calling into question the sort of normalcy of his Seventh-day Adventism. He thought it was weird, and he wanted you to know that it was weird. (laughs) Um, He did it to Ted Cruz. He really wanted you to know that he was maybe Cuban, maybe Canadian, maybe not totally American. Mm -hmm. Uh, He did it all around in whatever way he could, on religion, on race, on ethnicity, on gender, because he really does appeal to and want to appeal to this older male white American forgotten voter, forgotten guy. And I think he thinks that that's a winning message. Uh, You know, whether he deeply believes in himself, I'll never know, but he's done it so often and for so many years and so instinctively in the moment, I have to believe that's, that's somewhere inside him. One of the groups that he's otherized is the press with enemy of the people You know, I'm always interested when I hear my Republican friends say, well, they are. They're the enemy of the people. And I ask them, well, then who do you think will hold the government accountable? What's the next line of defense? There is no line of defense if you don't have the media. And you're in the media. What's that been like to be otherized? And how how personal has that gotten for you when you've been out and about and people see you? Is it, I mean, are you hearing people directly say something to you or, you know, they keep it to themselves? What's been your experience out in the world? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use otherize to describe journalists. He's villainized us for sure. But otherizing isn't just about making you afraid of a group of people. It, it's making you look at their race, their ethnicity, their gender. They're um, not part of us. They yeah, that's, I, think it's, I think it's much darker. But I will say, yes, obviously, mm-hmm. Trump has villainized the media He's done it very successfully. I mean, with a lot of success, people are deeply distrustful of the media. And part of that's our fault. We've played into some of that. But uh, I think that project for him is really an effort to consolidate power. So this is what dictators do. Dictators put a wall between them and the press. They really want you to see the press as the enemy because, and they do that with other kinds of institutions too. Um, Trump's done it with the intelligence community. He's done it 
you know, across the board because he wants to be the only person thing that you can trust. Everything else is untrustworthy uh, because if anything else is untrustworthy, then he's, he's vulnerable. So he's done that to the media. You know, I hate that. Obviously I take it personally. I take it personally on behalf of myself and also my community, my friends, my colleagues. But I also just think it's terrible for the country because as you say, you know, having a free and fair press is a bedrock of democracy. It's a, th- a thing that separates us from autocracies and dictatorships. And it's also, also a check on, on power. And, you know, I've had to come to grips with and, and really remind other folks sometimes that it is just not our job to be liked. And I'm okay with that. In fact, it's not our job to be liked, especially by people in power. Someone like the president shouldn't be a friend. Uh, that's not how this works. So if the president's tweeting about me, you know, and dislikes me and is calling me the enemy, that's not what I'd want, but that's actually, that's, that's all right. I'm doing my job. I think you have too many folks on both sides, you know, conservative media and liberal media that really like going to cocktail parties and really like being on the Christmas list and really like being able to call up not a source, but a friend because we all have high level sources, right? And we cultivate those relationships to keep our sources, They want to be able to call up a friend like the president and sort of influence or be able to parrot what they're saying in a way that pretends to be journalism. And that ain't it. Yeah, the access, uh, I would imagine, can be intoxicating. Uh, It can be. And that happens. That happens in both both kinds of administrations, both kinds of administrations that are friendly to the media, um, which are few. Uh, Of course, that can happen. You have to sort of balance your desire for a source and your, your um, obligation to still be objective. Now, listen, I'm an opinion journalist. I get to be subjective. I get to put my opinion out there, but I also use journalism in everything I do. I, I make calls. I, I have sources, you know, I, I double check and double source information. So, so, I use the fundamentals of journalism, which is how I came up to inform my opinion. I still think it's really important to treat, um, treat the process with some integrity uh, and with some standards. Right. Even opinion journalism should follow some journalistic standards. You know, you don't want to knowingly lie because you're trying to sell an idea. And I think we see that kind of propagandizing, not from every program on Fox news, Mm -hmm but certainly the president's favorites, which he promotes and is a friend of those people. And I don't even think hides the fact that there's conversations and consultation uh, and he knows exactly what's going to be uh, said that night on some programs. You know, look, a a lot of the Fox programs, uh, especially in prime time, you know, really build themselves as like infotainment and no one mistakes Sean Hannity, who's a friend of mine for a journalist, you know, he came up through, you know, talk radio. And so I think they can kind of use that as a, as an excuse to be less truthful, which is dangerous. But at the same time, I'm not sure that we, as a, 
as an industry do all that good a job uh, of just, you know, making the distinctions clear. Uh, Sometimes not making them clear is very convenient for us in the media. And I can't blame every news consumer for being a little confused sometimes as to who does what and who's following which rules and who can say what, what's true, what's not. I don't blame them. You know, when you say, you know, Sean Hannity is a friend of yours, you, you, you managed to make a principled stand against Trumpism, even though you are a conservative, you know, and, and I don't think you've probably walked away from your beliefs. Um, it has it cost you friendships, other relationships that have been impaired. You know, you don't have the benefit of a lot of people to kind of, you know, you make a living putting yourself out there, letting it be known how you feel. So I'm curious, you know, how that's affected your personal life. It has. Um it's funny that I've been in this business for a while and regardless of where, you know, what network I've been at, cause I've, I've worked at almost all of them at some point in some capacity or who's in the white house. This is always a thing where you're not sure, right. You've got a friend who's saying something at a different network or maybe at your own network and you disagree and you're, you have to navigate how to keep your friendships intact, if that's important to you. Some people are like scorched earth, burning bridges left and right. That's, not, that's never been interesting to me. You have to learn how to navigate keeping your friendships compartmentalized from your politics and your job. And that's not always easy and not everyone does it. So for friends who are mad that I'm not, um, you know, a Trump supporter, some of them have turned on me, not just professionally to like criticize me on the air, but also personally. But I, I have to say the majority of my friends and my friendships have remained intact. We don't always talk about politics as often as maybe we used to when we were feeling more aligned. But a perfect example, is, you know, I haven't seen Sean and... Um, I don't know, five years, at least five years. And last Christmas, there was a media Christmas party that I went to and we see each other. I say, oh my gosh. And he says, oh my gosh. And we hug and he said, how are you? How's your family? And I said, great. How's yours? I, you know, miss you. And he said, you know what? It's so great that you're doing so well. And I love to see how well you're doing, right? He and I could not be more opposed when it comes to what we say on the air and, and maybe even what we believe when it comes to Trump. Um, but he's always been someone who can make that, I think, make that line, make that break. And I really appreciate that um, about him. Not everyone's like that, but for the vast majority of my relationships on the left and the right, we, we've, we figure out how to na- you know, navigate this like adults. Have you been surprised in your career uh, the direction that identity politics has has taken? You know, we talk about this all the time. You know, you either can choose your identity or you can choose government accountability, but you can't choose both. If I walk into, let's say I walk into a, a car dealership and I say, look, I'm buying the car. It doesn't matter. You could take the wheels off this thing. You could quadruple the price. I'm in because I see myself as driving this make car. It doesn't matter what you do. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get a good deal. And if I say, well, you know, look, I might go with you, but there's a dealership down the street, different brand. I'm I'm interested in them as well. 
then I've actually given myself the power. What fascinates me about identity politics, whether you believe I'm a Democrat, I vote right down blue no matter what, or I'm a Republican, I vote right down red no matter what. Either way that you've done that, you've walked in the dealership and you've said, I'm buying the car. It doesn't matter what you do. Have you been surprised as to how that seems to have quickened or hastened under Trump? I think that's more tribalism, and and that has certainly ratcheted up, not even just since Trump. I think it was really building over the past decade, and this idea that we are so defined by our by our politics on, on both sides, I see as, as a real problem uh, because it's leaving so many in the middle out of the conversation. Both parties are moving so far to the extremes with all of these sort of increased purity tests and keep moving the, the goalposts. You're not liberal enough unless you go this far and you're not conservative enough or Trumpy enough if you don't go this far. And then a lot of people are left without representation because the majority is not on the extreme of really any issue. Um, You wouldn't know that if you just listened to the left wing or the right wing on on cable news. You really wouldn't. Look, tribalism by definition doesn't have to be bad. Tribalism is actually sort of an evolutionary biological survival instinct to identify the groups that you belong with and like-minded people. And that can be good. It's good in sports fandom. It's been used for good in um, some cases for religion and uh, community building. Why don't we shift to that? I wanted to ask you, you know, we could talk about sort of what's going on right now, which is so explosive. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and uh, there was so much you know, the internet, of course, explodes in moments like that. And I thought something you tweeted was one of the best things I read. It was so simple. I think shortly after the news broke, it just said, the next 52 days are going to be gross. And I, that really hit me because I was feeling it and I didn't know how to say it. And you said it for me. Well, because of the tribalism we've talked about and because there's not a real interest to solve problems, um, Anytime something like this, whether it was impeachment, something really polarizing, and it's unfortunate that the death of RBG has to be polarizing, but it is, that's a fact, comes up, then we seem to go to our basest, worst versions of ourselves. And Trump is responsible for a lot of that. He steers mm-hmm. a, a lot of that and foments a lot of that instead of, you know, um, right. tamping down tensions. He likes to ratchet them up. Right. And the- he's an amplifier. He's an amplifier. He's a narcissist. I mean, he, he's really, he's not, he's not interested in putting out fires. He wants to light them and then watch, um, you know, the, the panic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just think it's going to be, it's going to be gross in all ways. I've already seen it. Obviously, Republicans sort of questioning whether Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dying wish was actually hers or maybe a Democratic hoax. That's disgusting. That's gross. That's literally dancing on someone's grave. On the left, I've seen a lot of people go after um, one of the potential nominees, Amy Coney uh, Barrett, for being Catholic and having seven kids. She must be crazy. Who does that? Well, I mean, lots of people. Um, 
I think that's gross and not, you know, really germane to the issue. You want to talk about her, her policies, her rulings, her decisions, sure. But the fact that she's got seven kids, two of them adopted, by the way, shouldn't make her a terrible person. Um, it's just going to be gross. We saw grossness during the Kavanaugh hearing, I think, on, on both sides. We just we're not careful as a society anymore. We're not careful with these things. We're not nuanced. So, and I'm not trying to both sides. I'm just saying, I'm not just reserving this for Trump's going to be terrible. I think a lot of coverage and reaction is going to be less than ideal. And I'd love to say we're better than that. I'm just not sure we are anymore. Yeah, well, it, it requires leadership that brings out the best in us and not the worst. I mean, you, yeah. pointed, out, you pointed out today the president's statement that RBG's uh, message that she had uh, dictated to her granddaughter was perhaps something that Nancy Pelosi or some other of the Democrats had put out there. You know, stuff like that leaves you speechless. It's really hard to have a conversation, you know, when you're when the president of the United States is saying things that are so ungrounded from reality. I mean, where do you go well, from it's that? it's gaslighting. It's, you know, conspiracy theories. And it's designed to drive you crazy. It's designed to drive me crazy. It right. works. It has right. that intended effect. Um, and it's also designed to titillate and motivate his fans. That also works. Which is why it's so irresponsible and reckless. But um, yeah, I mean that owning the libs sensibility, yeah. I think, is about bringing your political opponents, which I think he might view as political enemies, um, bringing them down to his level and getting messy in the fight and getting dirty yeah. also, so that his behavior seems more normal because everyone's doing it. You know, there's an old saying about you know you don't get uh, in, a, in down in the mud with a pig because you both get dirty, but the pig enjoys it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely been an exercise of his not, to, not to elevate, you know, the, any conversations, but to bring everyone down to his level so he can say, look, and, and, you know, I just wrote about this maybe last week, I forget in the, in the New York daily news that Trump can parade around, you know, sort of flout, mask rules, social distancing rules, hold these disgusting, gross indoor rallies that just endanger his supporters and the rest of us. He can do that in some part because there was a little hypocrisy on the left about when and where you could socially gather, you know, both outside, inside, large gatherings, small gatherings. And rather than say, well, I'm not going to do that, he uses a little hypocrisy on the left to justify even worse decisions on his side, worse behavior. Um, And that's awful. It's small. It's not, that's not leadership um, under any, under any definition, but he takes advantage of that. And so whenever Democrats and media on the left, Congress, whatever, whenever they come to his level at all, it gives him um, permission in his mind to go even farther, to go even worse. It's a shame. It's a shame. It's a shame because no one can claim a kind of, you know, high ground anymore. You just, you know, I think we've all kind of gone further and further down. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that whatever Trump's administration ends, that'll be the task of the next president is to figure out how we can find a common ground and a discussion that advances all of us. You know, one of the things that's interesting, we talked to Alex Gibney and his documentary, Agents of Chaos, and what the Russians saw was, I'm going to grab the two areas where I know I can just get right in between everybody, which is race and immigration. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to put stuff out to how people on the left feel. I'm going to put stuff out to how people on the right feel. I'm just going to get them fomented, just mm-hmm. angry. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be incumbent upon the media and the messaging to not think that every issue has two sides. They don't. Some issues do. But there are times, and I know that you were a host of Crossfire, there are times where the idea of us arguing about every issue to say that someone is for something, which means someone else is against it, we need to cover both these equally. It just continues to create these little fissures that people will say, great, I'll just talk about this issue and watch me divide people. And at some point, we're going to have to get around certain things like mm, science, facts, truth, knowledge, uh, and we'll have to start to try to protect those things. And that's that's really, I'm wondering if you think that if Trump uh, loses and he loses badly, if you think that that's going to be part of the autopsy and the reckoning that's done? Or do you think, no, with social media, we're here to stay? Well, there's a lot in there. First of all, um, you know, one of the reasons I'm voting for Joe Biden, you know, as, as, a, as a Republican and a conservative, is because I want someone who's actually interested in taking the temperature down. I know I won't agree with him, maybe on most issues, on most policies, maybe. I know there are some I will, but I want someone to take the temperature down. And I think, I think he's, he wants to do that. I genuinely believe he wants to do that. Whether he can, whether he'll be allowed to by the far left wing of his flank, you know, and then the media and everyone else in the ecosystem, that remains to be seen. But I do believe he wants to do that. Now, the media in a lot of ways responds to, you know, we're supply and demand. If news consumers really wanted C-SPAN, we'd look a lot more like C-SPAN. But most, you know, news consumers want that high-octane kind of news coverage. So in some ways, you know, it's incumbent on news consumers to demand the kind of coverage that they want. But again, it, it also goes back to that idea that finding solutions, coming together, finding comity is not politically profitable. I think immigration is a perfect example, and it started long before Trump. Um, the wedge issue for immigration has long been, and this is just by an example, has long been um, citizenship, right? The far right is, I'm, we're not for citizenship. The far left is, uh, we need citizenship. Well, what issue care, uh, matters more to actual undocumented immigrants legal status. A lot of people that come here want to stay for a while, come out of the shadows and maybe go home at some point. Um, So if they're more interested in prioritizing legal status, why are we on both sides arguing over citizenship? Well, I'll tell you why, because you can't fundraise over solving it. You can't run on solving it. You can only run on keeping it broken. And so, and you can find examples of that in gun policy. I mean, name it. So I'm not surprised the voters are very um, frustrated, disappointed in 
distrusting of government and politicians. And I'm also not surprised that they find some solace in grievance politics, in identifying with their side who is equally aggrieved or equally as angry or outraged, exercised, because it doesn't feel like anyone's listening sometimes. So look, there's a fever in this country that is not going to be broken by electing Joe Biden, is not going to be broken by keeping Trump in office. None of those are going to fix things. We have to decide as people if we want to keep being sick and or do we want to get healthy? Do we want to get healthy as a country? Do we want to like our neighbors instead of hate our neighbors? Who do we want to be? That happens at the community level, at the family level, in schools. It, it's not just about the president. And I actually think the president has become too important a figure in American politics. You know, George Washington, when he was first elected, was like embarrassed to have an inaugural ball. He was a public servant. He didn't think this should come with the trappings of a king. And over the years, we've gotten so far away from that. The president's become not just a celebrity, but a cure for every ill Every societal ill, he will solve every problem you've ever had. And that's just, I think, such a warped way of looking at public service. And so I think, I think we also need to kind of break that cycle of, of transferring so much importance on the president and what he or she can do to solve problems that we should really be looking in our own backyard to solve. No, I, I hear you, and I, I appreciate that very much, but... I'd like to dig down a little more on one thing, though, this idea that, well, the public wants this, this uh, type of information, so that's what we're going to give them. In an effort to present all, quote-unquote, all sides of an issue, sometimes we maybe work a little too hard um, when some issues are a bit more black and white. And look, that's something that, you know, media has been reconciling with and and challenged by, you know, the New York Times gets a lot of flack for not calling the president a liar more explicitly. Sometimes they'll say the president misspoke or misled. And a lot of people think the, the New York Times should go further than that in headlines. So look, we don't have this all completely sorted out and figured out. But I think sometimes we should challenge ourselves also to say, well, we might think something's orthodoxy. And actually it's not. Actually, there, there might be another side to it. And it doesn't have to be the exact mirror image of black and white thing. It can be a layer. It can be a nuance that doesn't take it completely to its opposite, but that sheds some light on something you thought was solved, done, settled. And I think we should effort to do more of that as, as media and not necessarily the thing you're talking about where we try to find someone who's just going to say, no, you're completely wrong and here's why. I want to ask you a question about the women's vote. Speaking only for myself, you know, I lived in New York in the 80s and 90s. And so my, uh, and I come from a background of the business and investment world. And so, you know, I've followed Donald Trump very closely and I've been one removed from him. Uh, for many years. And so when it came time around for him to run for president, I didn't oppose his candidacy because I'm a Democrat. I'm not. I've voted for Republican presidential candidates many times in my life. I opposed his candidacy 
because I knew very well that he was a person that lacked integrity and that he was a commercial charlatan. And what I said at that time to some of my friends was, the women are going to save us from this. Because my opposition to him is foundational. It has to do with things that are completely disconnected from policy. Trump's relationship with women seems to be a major part of understanding who he is as a person, character-wise. I mean, he's putting the serial infidelity aside. um, I mean, he's been credibly accused of sexual assault probably more than a dozen times. And I've heard stories and rumors firsthand in, in the past. So I'm curious, is it different now? And does the passing of Justice Ginsburg maybe animate women in a way uh, that is a factor now versus in 2016? Yeah, I think we learned, a lot of people learned in 2016 not to assume what women want and that there are women who can compartmentalize, um, you know, a guy's personal, I guess you call it personal life, um, from the policies they believe will be championed. And, you know, it's not for me to judge the way women vote, but I think we should be aware of the fact that obviously we're not a monolith, right? And we, we, we have different priorities. I used to joke back in like 2008, I was doing like the college speaking tour circuit, you know, and people would say, well, as a woman, what do you think about X issue? You know, the economy, taxes, whatever. And I, I would always joke, well, I got to ask my uterus, hold on one second. <laughs> you know, we're not, we don't all think the same, right? And I think, I think that's an important thing to keep reminding ourselves as we, you know, we saw it during the 2018 midterms, we'll see it again, maybe in some surprising ways um, that maybe cut, cut, for, cut for Joe Biden this, this, this year, maybe not. The RBG thing also, also cuts both ways. I think just as many women might be animated for a pro-life justice appointment than a uh, pro-choice justice appointment. And so I think you're going to see both sides really trying to rev that up and amp that up. And my fear is that they'll do that at the expense of some other issues that women care about. Um, It's, you know, it doesn't just come down to reproductive rights for us. So I'm hoping that on, on, for, for the left and the right, and just like SCOTUS watchers, that we talk mo- about more than just abortion uh, when we're looking at this potential nominee, because, you know, a lot of other cases will come before someone who uh, could very well be there for 40, 50 years. You wrote a book uh, called Losing Our Religion, The Liberal Media's Attack on Christianity. And yet, from what I've read, you're an atheist. I'm fascinated by what drew you to the subject and um, how you came out of that experience. Well, I've been an atheist for a long time, but I've also I was raised um, in in religion and studied a lot of different religions. I got a master's in religion, so I've always been fascinated and, and interested in in scholarship. Um, even, even as, um, you know, a, a non-believer myself. And I've always had a deep respect for the faithful. I, I'm almost envious of uh, religiosity and the idea of having this faith that is, you know, there for you. And so 
when I was coming up in politics, doing, doing media criticism was something that I, I really enjoyed. And I just noticed at the time that I wrote the book that there was just a lot of ground to cover when it came to the way the media talked about religion, the way the media covered and didn't cover religion, the way we talked about Christian candidates, sometimes differently on the left than we do on the right. That just seemed fertile ground to, to, to do a research project, which turned into a book, not because I'm religious myself, but because I'm a member of the media. And I don't think we cover that all that well, considering how religious our country is. Looking at that and how the, the left has left, you know, Jimmy Carter's talked about this. He said that, you know, the Democrats have turned their back on people of faith. And as a result, people of faith have found themselves feeling like the only person that's hurt them is Donald Trump. Um, do you see that having a shift that people uh, who are in the Democratic Party might realize, geez, we've kind of been condescending to an entire group of people. What, what, did, what were your findings on that? I would hope so. I, I thought Pete Buttigieg um, in the primary was a really refreshing and important advocate for the Democratic Party during, during the primary because he came out as an unapologetic, you know, muscular Christian voice. He spoke the language fluently. It was not a put on, you know, he was um, authentic in that. And I think it reminded a lot of people what it sounded like when a Democrat talked positively about God. That's good for the party. For the Democratic Party. And I think the Democratic Party needs more of that, not less. Uh, now, it shouldn't try to create it in, in Democrats who are not religious and we're not, who, who are, you know, more, more secular candidates. But I don't think it should dismiss religiosity um, as it can sometimes do as backwards and, um, you know, hocus pocus. And really, that's, I mean, that's what Trump did. Trump did that for a lot of religious candidates coming up. We talked about Ben Carson. He wasn't the only one. He's dismissed a lot of people of faith as being somehow kind of kooky. And I don't think it's good when anybody does that. But yeah, as a party, I think if you are Christian, and less so Catholic, but if you are Christian, certainly evangelical, born again, um, my dad's my dad's born again, you feel as though Democrats do not, not only don't understand you, don't appreciate you, don't maybe even tolerate you. I'm not a person of faith, but I can see, you know, if nothing else, politics, I think, should be at its best a game of persuasion and compromise and understanding. And the Democratic Party really should make um, Christians or people of faith feel that there's a home there potentially for them. Uh, if they feel uncomfortable with, you know, policy from the other side, uh, because as someone once said to me, God doesn't belong to anyone. I wanted to ask you uh, before uh, we left, if you think there's a hope for rehabilitation of the conservative movement mm-hmm. and what that looks like and, and who you see as the kind of people in the Republican Party that might um, be leaders I have hope that there is, and I've, I, you know, I've talked about this and written about this a bunch as well. I talk about what, what I call the conservative coma. You know, conservatism isn't dead. It's a value system that exists whether there are supporters or not, but it certainly feels like it's in a coma. And 
needs some life support. And who's going to deliver that, I think is, I'm not sure that they're around right now. I'm not sure that they're actually in positions of power right now. And there's some debate internally over whether it's going to be a moderate conservative who revives the party, like a Mitt Romney or, you know, like a Reagan-esque type of figure, or whether it's going to take a far left, you know, um, socialist kind of candidate to really revive, you know, Republicans and bring them back to a sort of centrally organizing set of principles. And I'm not sure what what that's going to be or what that's going to look like, but I think it's going to take a while. And that was my concern with Donald Trump back in 2016, that the damage he was doing to the party was going to be very long lasting, far, far outlasting him. The, the, the damage to the credibility of the party, to the principles, to the platform, to our identity um, was going to be really hard to undo. I'm not sure that it can be undone. Uh, ultimately. So uh, we're, we'll, we'll have to see, but I don't think anything's going to be quick. Well, SC, thank you very much for your time. This has been a great conversation. We appreciate your, uh, just your willingness to dig down on these issues. It's been great. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. So Ed, that was really interesting. Yeah, she's, she's really smart. I'm glad we had someone with, who's a conservative and to hear her perspective on things. I'm fascinated by her willingness to, it's what we talk about all the time, what we hope for, for ourselves and for each other is that willingness to back up and look at something and really analyze how our approach and our biases uh, affect the outcome. And, you know, she is a conservative. She's been a, cons- a consistent conservative. And she's saying, you know, for her, um, Trump is a bridge too far. And what I thought was really interesting was that her her interest and desire in voting for Biden wasn't simply, I'm going to stick it to Trump. It was an attempt at a solution of, I think the temperature needs to be brought down. That's exactly what I was going to say. I, that's what stood out for me. I really appreciated her ability to articulate why she was going to support uh, the candidate of, of the party she doesn't belong to. And even though she knows she's going to disagree with Joe Biden and on policy, and she feels as if he has the right kind of style, leadership, temperament to bring the temperature down. And I mean, frankly, I think that's right. You know, I'm not going to always agree with Joe Biden. I mean, hell, I haven't agreed with any president 100% in my entire adult life, but it hasn't prevented me from trying to understand what their point of view was. And it hasn't prevented me from agreeing with people I did not vote for and or disagreeing with people I have voted for. You know, she she talks about in one of the show clips that I watch, she talks about, you know, being tired. And it reminded me of as a conservative being tired. And I it reminded me of something Stuart Stevens from the Lincoln Project said to us um, that one of the benefits of civil society should be that you don't have to think about politics all the time. And Trump denies you of that right. People are exhausted. And the one thing I know about Joe Biden is as a citizen, the worst thing he's going to do to me, I believe, is be wrong. 
in my opinion. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, I think Joe Biden will be wrong about something, maybe many things. But I can live with that because the system, the integrity of our institutions is more important than what I want. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, this has been the head and the heart. Uh, please follow us on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We would love a review. Tell us what you want to hear us talk about. Uh, thanks for listening. And the show is SC Cup Unfiltered on CNN, Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. Check her out. And you can find us on Twitter, head underscore heart underscore pod. And this podcast was produced by Casey Morris. Thanks, guys.